Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Jerry Finnis, CEO of Pathway to Living, a senior living operator based in Chicago. It's been a big summer for Pathway to Living. The company recently started working with Welltower and is set to nearly double its senior living portfolio with the addition of 22 communities as part of a $97 million transaction with the Real Estate Investment Trust. And although there are still many details to be worked out in that arrangement, Finnis believes that that new relationship will help drive Pathway to its next evolution. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our next Build Conference happening in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Build is an annual event dedicated to the latest trends in architecture, design, and innovation for senior living owners, operators, and developers. Hear how industry players are redefining senior living development and planting their stakes now to reshape the future. Be sure to visit seniorhousingnews.com events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. And now, here's my interview with Jerry Finnis, CEO of Pathway to Living. Jerry Finnis, thank you so much for joining me on Transform today. You know, obviously, it's been a big summer for Pathway to Living. So I wanted to start with kind of the news of the day. So there's a 22 community edition with Well Tower that we uh, wrote about last month. So I'm curious, you know, to the extent that you can talk about this, how did that deal come together? You know, set the scene for me a little bit. Well, it was actually fairly simple. Um, the Well Tower approached us. They had been approached by other brokerage community that was representing the sellers and brought this out to market to look to acquiring this, and they thought it was an opportunity. And we knew of, uh, we've never done business with Wildtop before, but knew a lot of the folks here over the years. And they knew we uh, were involved with uh, some Medicaid waiver, waiver pro, uh, projects here in the Midwest. The vet, these are all in the Midwest. We actually had looked at this portfolio several years ago a little bit with the Wildtower folks when they were considering it, you know, probably about three years ago. So there was a little bit of a connection and uh, they just approached us and they were looking at it and, and sort of went on from there. Great. And then I was also curious, now that you're working with Welltower, are there any initiatives or efforts that, you know, you had had on your mind for a while that you feel like, you know, Pathway will now be able to do? Well, you know, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, our, our relationship with an organization like Welltower, this is our first large relationship like this. Of, of this size. And I know that Welltower was uh, one of the organizations out in the forefront of bringing in their operating partners and sort of sharing uh, resources, not really resources per se, but you know, information and best practices and things like that. So that's just starting to get going. So we, we look forward to that. We think it's going to make a, a big difference. I, I will say because they are a, a public REIT, you know, we had to uh, go through a whole different process for, from accounting, Starbanks actually reporting and things like that. So that's that's a little bit of a learning curve, but uh, we're on top of that. So I, I know, I think if you ask me that the same question a year from now, it, it'll be uh, have a lot more robust answers to it than, than we do now. So it's, it's just getting started. 
Yeah. Maybe this is then your answer for my next question, but I'm also curious. So 22 communities, you know, not a small addition, especially for a company at Pathway size. So what are your plans to integrate these into your larger portfolio? And and also, you know, I'm not sure you can speak to this, but I remember reading in a business update, I think maybe there were some more communities that might come your way. So yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the way that an organization like Well Tower works is they want to expand the relationship that they have. And number one, there's, you know, we're, we all get familiar with one another. And I think it's, that's just their model is to only have certain many operators in, in their various regions and, um, you know, expand those relationships if they can. It'll be interesting. I think that over time there, there will be more that, that fit into our footprint and fit into things that we want to do. And then depending on the capacity of some of their other partners at that moment in time, you know, hopefully they'll, they'll bring us things. You know, it's interesting. From our side being uh, coming from the operation side and also the development side over time is, you know, the large financial institutions like a well tower, they get presented these big opportunities first. They they absolutely do. So they see them before, you know, most operators like ourselves will see them. We'll usually get brought in by the financial source. So I'm sure they'll see more and and the REITs seem to be very busy and what they're doing around the country, all the REITs. And so it'll be, be an interesting next couple of years. Yeah. You know, I think we've seen a lot of operators, you know, linking up with with big partners. You know, we this week we're doing our active adult summit and we we talked with a few in our panels who, you know, forge similar relationships with that particular REIT. So I'm curious, in your eyes, what do you see as kind of the keys to like a good operator owner or operator relationship? I mean, obviously, you know, transparency communication, that's one that I hear all the time, but what else? Probably the biggest thing is I think the concept of alignment is really important. And I think Wall Tower for sure and other REITs we do some business with, and and I think the whole industry is getting that way, is it's more aligned with the operator. The old, say, you know, 100% finance sale, leaseback transaction, I'm not sure long-term considering the, how markets move up and down, I'm not sure that that's aligned, that, that the alignment is right. I, I think the... Uh, idea type structure, which is very similar to a joint venture equity type structure, is very much more aligned where, where we all participate, you know, in the upside. We were actually just really thinking about, especially in a project like this particular group that we took over, that we invested in, it is, you know, we're very much have to be on the same page as to what the issues are, what the problems are, the market servers are in, the marketplace issues that are going on that we have to do. So we really, really have to be aligned versus sort of the typical equity lender type relationship, which, you know, is is not necessarily aligned correctly. That makes a lot of sense to me. I also remember recalling, this was a a couple of years ago now, there was some discussion about Pathway launching. I think it was a new independent living model. So I wanted to get an update. You know, what form did that ultimately take? And then, you know, I also want to just get your take more generally on, you know, Mm-hmm. making independent living a more welcoming product type for these baby boomers that are coming into this industry? Yeah, yeah that's a great question because I think the the older independent living model is not necessarily going to work for the boomers when, when we all get to that age where we're sort of you know age appropriate for that. I would think that from an independent living perspective, you know, we were going down a path and then, you know, we're you know, we're working on some projects and then COVID hit and that sort of sl- <laughs> slowed everything down for that. But But I would say that you know the new independent living model is going to be it's going to be trying to find a way to be more affordable find a way to be more not always one size fits all in terms of the service bundles that people buy 
little, you know, more optional services. And, and I think that's all going to, that's all going to make it and attract actually a bigger footprint of folks who might be able to come in because not everybody wants, you know, three big meals a day and not everybody wants all the other things you can get depending on the age group that, that they're in. So I, I think it's going to be, um, these optional services are going to make a difference. And I think, as I said, as I think everything that we can do in the industry to get the price points down as, as affordable as we can, just does nothing but expand the marketplace for us. You know, I will say this in terms of the model when we started working on it, it was sort of pre-active adult. And it was really thinking about it as a sort of a form of that somewhere probably between active adult and your typical independent living setting, again, with these optional services. So I, I think the I think the industry is sort of defining itself right now, and as these products get segmented out in the marketplace and, and sort of go after different market segments, and it will it'll be interesting. But you know, I, it, we're not sure what senior living 2.0 looks like, but we know it's we're sort of there and it's coming and it's evolving. This is a great segue into something else I was curious about. So obviously, uh, middle market opportunity, it's huge. And yet, you know, this still seems like it's a it's still a sort of a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Obviously, though, uh, it sounds like you put a lot of thought into how to meet the middle market. So can you talk about, you know, how how you kind of make the math work there on an operational basis? I think you had mentioned a moment ago, maybe in some of these newer models, you're working on unbundling some services. Mm-hmm. That seems like one way to do this. But yeah, tell me how how you can make it work and meet the middle market in your communities. Well, you know, middle market, when, when that phrase sort of came out and started becoming, you know, more in vogue for whatever reason, it was so the big development boom was still going on. Everything was new construction. And we're all trying to figure out how do you possibly a, a deal with middle market because every, everything new construction is expensive. Almost has to be expensive without some other form of uh, subsidy. I think with COVID and all the occupancy declines and things like that that have hit the marketplace, I think that market's going to start going to start to create itself and make things more affordable that way. I think it's going to be the unbundling as you described, but I think it's but but that's on the independent living side. It's hard to unbundle too much on the assisted living side just because their needs are so great. And surely we all know that the average age of folks moving in and the average acuity. Folks moving into assisted living has just grown and grown and grown, and it's not obvious that that's going to slow down that much. So I think it's a um, it's going to be it'll be an interesting time to see how that shakes itself out. You know, there's going to be a, there's not tons of distress in the marketplace, but there's going to be enough for sort of the capital costs of the bricks and the mortar and the um, and the real estate is, should be a little bit lower than it was uh, a couple of years ago. And I think what we're going to possibly see on some of these products as since the real estate capital costs such a big, a big piece of it, you know, as these projects will start to segment themselves a little bit older communities that have been renovated are still cheaper than building brand new. So that's going to more likely than not, you know, serve that lower price point and the higher and the new construction is all going to be for higher price point probably, or just totally filling a, a hole in the market that, that is, is sitting there. Yeah, we we've had we you know again we we had this active adult summit this week. We just wrapped up actually this afternoon. During that summit, there was a lot of discussion about how active adult as a product type fits into this middle market discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe to sort of continue your thoughts, mm-hmm. you know, how do you see active adult fitting into the middle market picture? On the one hand, it seems like this is a very good entry point at an affordable price. On the other hand, you know, what you get with active adult is you know, people will need care when they get older and there are things that people will need. So 
it seems like there's a balancing act to do there. Um, so what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, but my thoughts are, I mean, the, uh, surely not the expert and active adult, but I think the average age moving in is 72, 74, give or take, is what I've been told. And that's definitely a lot younger than in independent living or assisted or memory care. It basically gets folks out of their home into a senior, a different housing environment sooner than they would have otherwise. So for the whole industry, I think that that's a good thing. It, it gets it more acceptable. So if, if they move in earlier, it might be easier to move on to the next uh, level of care that they need when they need it versus holding on to that home that they've been living in for the last 45 or 50 years. I think the unbundling uh, or the active adult type minimum services that are offered there, I think, again, it's just a form of unbundling and, and, and targeting a, a younger age group and make it attractive. It's, it's a, a, I, my thought is it's a, it is a condominium purchase alternative compared to, you know, compared to what was there before. And I think it, again, in a lot of neighborhoods, you think about it, it allows folks that that actually maybe have been in their home for 50 years and now all of a sudden they find out they need a roof and they need this and that. And all of a sudden they got $50,000 worth of improvements they have to make just to keep their home up. They have, they have a, a pretty good quality alternative that they don't have to buy something new, you know? And so I think that's great because the quality of the active adult that I've seen is, is really good and it's a real attractive alternative for folks. So I think it's also because depending on where you build it and depending on, your cost of land, your cost of construction, type of construction, all those kind of things. It allows you to go after different price points. Surely if you put active adult in the neighbor, uh, high income neighborhood in Chicago, it's going to be really expensive in comparison to, you know, maybe a, a far out suburban marketplace where there's lots of folks that live out there that need it. You can get in there, you can build it. I used to always say with wood, with wood uh, frame, that became very expensive, but I guess it went down about 40% this month, but it, it allows you to attract that different, uh, that different price point just like they do in all kinds of multifamily. It's really priced the same way. It, it, it really operates or is the market sort of looks at it the same way. I also want to ask you about the recovery that you are seeing in your markets. So what are you seeing in terms of the recovery? You know, is Are things like move-ins and leads, are they still holding steady as maybe they were earlier in this year? And then I also want to get your take on how long you think uh, this recovery period is going to last. You know, it's interesting. When, when I think about what we've all been through since COVID started, so from a practical standpoint, from March 15th of 2020, at least in the Midwest here, Till December 31st of 2020, nothing changed except that we knew a vaccine was hopefully coming. That's about all that happened. Then from January 1st till mid-March, we were doing nothing but vaccinating, you know, the residents and as many staff as we possibly can that that would do it. It's really only been, and then you think about it, so, so the prospects, the folks that were living with their kids or in their home or some other place out in the community, we're not vaccinated, at least around, let's say, in the Chicago metro area, weren't really vaccinated until sometime end of March and early April. So they really weren't able to start thinking long and hard and feel comfortable getting out until sometime in springtime. So that's when we started seeing a lot more of the um, inquiries really pick up. We started seeing, you know, definitely more move-ins. We started seeing uh, lower acuity residents finally starting to come back into the marketplace. Doesn't mean they are low acuity, but lower than we saw before. The only folks that did move in during the the heat of the pandemic, heart of the pandemic going on, was when it was, that they really had no other alternative. So we found we're seeing 
activity and, and everything else really picking up. My only question is how long is this? We don't know yet. Are we really dealing with sort of a lot of pent up demand that's going to you know, keep us busy for the next couple of months and slow down? We'll see. That will, Time will tell with that. I think we're going to see another little surge, I think, sometime in September, October, when if, if mom's at home living with, the, with their daughter and their kids, and all of a sudden the kids are going to go back to school, and, you know, and so therefore maybe mom goes, you know, goes back to work, doesn't have to work out of the house. So all of a sudden, you know, sort of everything might, might open up again a little bit more. So, so we'll see. We'll, we'll see. It's, uh, it's too early to tell. You know, senior housing is senior housing. It picks up, but it, it's not like uh, an apartment building that you can, if you, if you really worked hard and demand is out crazy, you can at least have 50 units in a month. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way in senior housing. Yeah. I've heard a lot of uh, sort of cautious optimism over the past few months about kind of what the future holds, especially in terms of where opportunities might lie. So I want to get your take on this, you know, looking over, let's say the next six months, 12 months and 18 months, you know, what do you see as the big opportunities ahead? And also, how are you preparing to execute on some of that? Well, I think the opportunities are going to come in in bunches. I think, meaning you're gonna, you know, the, you know, you're gonna see groups of projects being sold at a time like this. Maybe, maybe smaller groups, but not as many one-off type communities as we saw before. I think you're gonna see the, I think the financial buyers that have the cash are gonna be, you know, dominant for the next, you know, between private equity and and the REITs are gonna be dominant for the next year or two. The banking industry is going to be a little bit slower to come back into senior housing, and they need more occupancy buildup and and some more stability behind that pay, uh, uh, that side of it. So I think those there's definitely going to be a reshuffling of reshuffling of the marketplace, and I think it's going to make a, a big difference for. But you you have to be able to you have to have the cash to be able to execute, and if you don't, for example, like this this portfolio we just did with Baltar. That would not have been an easy portfolio to finance with a bank. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, I think very few of them are. So I think it's a, uh, those are the kind of opportunities that are, are going to exist. And I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, folks, you know, owners uh, exit the industry um, only because the last building boom that, that we had from like 14, 15 on till COVID really started, there were a whole lot of newer entrants into the senior housing space, a whole lot of developers and owners that came in from other other sectors of the real estate industry said, oh, senior housing, I've dealt with mom and I wasn't happy where she was at. I can do better. Let's go build one. I think those kind of folks are going to are gonna be the ones that if they haven't already exited, are going to exit when they can. And because uh, they find out it's a hard business, to, it's a hard business to operate. So here's the other part of that question. We've just talked about where you see opportunities. Where do you see risk? You know, the quintessential sort of what keeps you up at night question. Yeah. To be very honest, I think the biggest risk to this industry is the staffing and labor problem. I think it's by far we can, we can look at the demographics and count heads of how many folks are coming through the pipeline, when they, what age they are, and all kinds of good information is there to do that. And you compare that to how much housing exists and all kinds of things, you, you can see that, you know, even if there are going to be other alternatives for some of those prospects, there should be plenty of, plenty of, you know, folks to, you know, to live in our communities. I think the biggest problem is going to be staffing. It's going to be labor. It's going to be labor wages. Um, I'm not sure what the 
answer is long term because it seems to be so disjoint. It was it was difficult before the recession and COVID and pandemic hit. I think you know we were wondering in the industry if when all the hotels shut down, you know, back March, April, May of 2020, if all those folks were going to come meander over to senior housing and fill all the openings that we had. And I think we were all relatively surprised that, that didn't happen as much as it did. So it will be interesting to see how it how that shakes out. Um, I don't. It's not obvious to me what the big picture answer is. Surely, at any one community, you can do some things, or any one market, you can do some things. But in general, you know, working in senior housing, especially on the frontline staff, is a very difficult position. It's demanding. It's uh, different hours. It's just a, it's a it's not an easy way to make a living. And we, as an industry, have to try to find a way to make it more attractive. Besides wages, just in general, have to make it more attractive. And 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 that's. There's no obvious answer for that yet, but it has to happen, and it will happen, just because the demand there's somehow demand. It doesn't mean that they're not going to, you know, that that the wages aren't going to change significantly. But we'll see. You know, when we're competing against as Chicago today, the uh, city of Chicago raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. I think it was fourteen dollars or thirteen fifty before that, because today was the first day, and that makes. Now we were already at that or above in our Chicago, Chicago metropolitan area projects, but in general, that keeps setting the bar up. And I think we're going to have to have to deal with that because if, if somebody doesn't want to work for a senior housing community at $15 or $16 an hour, they can go down the street to Target and, and work at $17 an hour. So it's a competitive world and we have to figure out how to compete in it. So one thing that occurs to me is that, you know, staffing has kind of always been tough in this industry. So I guess, you know, first off, where is Pathway to Living feeling pressure on the staffing side? And then also, I want to get your take on how does this compare with you know, how staffing was before the pandemic? Surely staffing is difficult most everywhere, especially if you're in major markets that have a lot of competitors. We, we have a community out in a far suburban marketplace that uh, it's on a major road, uh, Route 12. And if you come from the east, going to the west, you go by about 10 miles of shopping centers, restaurants, department stores, and everything else. At the end of the line is our senior living community. So, so if you were not looking for a job, they would have went by about 2,000 openings just to get there, driving there. So that's maybe a, a, a picture. I, I think it's going to be a, it'll be a difficult road to hoe. I think uh, the wages are going to have to be competitive because they're asking people to, you know, make this their uh, career. I think um, it's harder than it was five years ago, six years ago. I think part of that is the other industries that grew and boomed along the way all were going for the same the same kind of um, employees, you know, the uh, frontline worker types, the, the culinary folks, the folks that could work at Target, the folks that could work at the Amazon distribution center that opened up, all kinds of, so there's a lot more competition than there was at that at that wage level. So not obvious to me how, what the solution is going to be from, the, from an industry perspective, except that we have to be competitive, you know, and we're just going to have to figure out how to, how to pay for that. And I think we're going to have to, the industry is going to have to figure out and the residents are going to have to figure out that that's just the cost of doing business and caring for their loved ones. You know, I think technology also kind of fits into this. Technology has become, I think, kind of a standard for, for residents and their families moving into a community, especially with this pandemic. You know, I feel like there's just a new kind of level of expectations. At the same time, you know, there is that big question of 
how do you implement this stuff and how do you pay for it? So I, I guess to start with, you know, what role does technology play in Pathways operations? And then like, how do you think about budgeting for that and implementing that into your operations in a way that's kind of seamless? Well, I think, and I'm not a, a, a surely a technology expert, but I always thought of a lot of technology in, in the beginning made the residents' experience better, maybe safer. You know, some of the technologies, the monitor folks left falling and things like that. You know, all that stuff's great. It doesn't nece- didn't necessarily save money and labor and things like that. It, uh, it was all good, but it wasn't necessarily a cost savings. And it was expensive to input especially if you're trying to put it throughout a community, because a lot of the older communities weren't geared up to deal with it, didn't have the infrastructure, you know, the Wi-Fi and things like that to, to deal with it. So I think it's going to, but I think a lot of it, you asked the question, how, well, it, we have to figure out how technology is going to start saving, be, become more efficient operations, which will ultimately save some costs. I think from a pay-for perspective, I, I think it's be, once especially we start to see some, at least, what looks like an ROI coming out of it and maybe some labor savings or some other kind of things, I think we're going to, you know, capital markets will more be aligned with that and help start to pay for pay for some of these things. I think uh, I think there's going to become sort of an industry standard that we have to have the backbones in all the buildings, which we know we have to have. And I think that, that there's going to be two kinds of ROIs, I think. The first one is if you can put something in and save some labor and you can save some money, the other one's going to be purely defensive is that if the other neighbors have it, the competitors have it, it's going to be a big difference, and, and you, have to, you have to have it just to, to protect your turf, sort of. But I think I can tell you that when you're looking at a new community today with a capital partner, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to figure that out to make sure that you have the right infrastructure there and that you can, you know, you, you can at least take advantage of some of the things that become as they present themselves over time. So, so I, and I think that technology also can go at things a lot of different ways, sort of, um, you know, telehealth will make a big difference. Hopefully that over time, will, will be, less folks will be sent out 911, those kind of things, because of, because they can get a lot of those attention right where they're right there I mean, in the community. All those kind of things add up to, you know, to additional revenue or cost savings. I want to sort of hear what you think Pathway is going to be up to for the remainder of this year and kind of close things out on that note. But before I do, I also want to, so here's kind of a fun question, you know, let's pretend like you had the power to change the senior living industry in any way that you saw fit, you know, you Mm -hmm. could, you could be the architect and do whatever you wanted. What would you change if you had that kind of control is, you know, what would you do with this industry? Somehow we have to make this industry become a place that more of a place that that people up and down the staffing levels want to work in. Somehow we have to become more of that. Part of that's going to be wages. Part of that's going to be we can't always just be hoping that, that we can pay barely enough to fill that position versus somebody else having to work two jobs. We, we've we got to make a career out of this, and it somehow has to get fit into the cost structure of the industry. That's the way that this industry gets stabilized. The other thing I hope that in the future that we're not going to have, uh, you know, we had quite a lot of building when you look at all the development that went on, something like 15, 16, 17, 18. I just hope that we don't have the same crazy type numbers of, of new building as everybody's saying you know the boomers are around the corner well the boomers are around the been around the corner for 15 years you know and they're really still nine or ten years away from assisted living you know typically age so 
you know, I just hope that the industry is going to have enough discipline to not allow the new entrants just to come in and, and throw up communities wherever they wherever they think, because it doesn't help doesn't help the industry, doesn't help the services that folks get, gives us, frankly, gives us no pricing power to pay their wages that we maybe are going to have to pay in the future. Yeah. All right. So here's your opportunity to tell us what you're up to this year, you know, plug some initiatives that you feel proud about. What are we going to see out of Pathway to Living through the remainder of 2021? Well, I think 2021 really is, is that the whole industry, I think, is back in, in, in a lease up mode today. And it doesn't mean you won't have a communities here and there that, that for whatever reason, you know, weren't hurt as much by, by the pandemic in terms of occupancies, particular market that wasn't hurt as bad. But I, but I think the whole industry is going to be through a, a form of uh, lease up again. And I think that's just going to take a while. So I think we all have to be cautious and disciplined about what we do and what we do in, in, over the next 12 or in 12 to 18 months. You know, the, the, the labor markets that we're all dealing with are going to be there. there like I said, there's no obvious answer for that. So it's going to, that's going to take a while. Even if we found all kinds of communities we, we want to take over six months from now, you know, the industry doesn't have enough. We don't have enough staff today just to do that in a, in a, you know, in a minute. Everybody has to run lean and mean, you know, because of the state of the world today. So I think it's going to be, I don't want the industry to get ahead of itself because I think that doesn't help at all. And I think we have to have, we got to solve these other problems to make sure that we regain the confidence of the consumer who can ultimately feel real comfortable that this is a really great, a great living environment or a good living environment for their mom or for their dad or for their other loved one. If we don't do that, it doesn't matter. If it's not attractive to somebody, or at least a certain part of the population, it doesn't, it doesn't make a difference how much or how little you pay for a particular building. It doesn't matter at all. Well, those are good words of advice to end on. So, Jerry Finnis, thank you so much for coming on Transform. This was a great discussion. Thank you very much. That does it for this episode of Transform. I would again like to mention our upcoming Build event in Chicago on November 17 and 18. Be sure to visit SeniorHousingNews.com slash events for the latest updates on Build and our other scheduled events. Again, I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.